After the events where Jesus proclaimed himself Lord of the Sabbath, which we heard Rod preach a couple weeks ago, Pharisees went out and plotted against him. And they knew that scripture he quoted directly spoke to their situation because he never spoke out of context. In their self-righteousness, they thought that they had the scripture down pat. In fact, they twisted the scripture to suit their own perverse lifestyle. He proved by the proper use of Scripture and the resulting miracles he performed that his teaching was the truth and theirs was false. So he withdraws from the fray, and of course, people, a lot of people, followed him. And he just kept on healing and ministering to them. He didn't need the approval of the Pharisees to do what he came to do. But he warned them not to make him known out there in that desert. And why do you think that is? Well, I look at this and I think it certainly wasn't because he was afraid. Because he came to die for the sins of man. He must have had another reason. Well, the Bible tells us what it is. That scripture would be fulfilled. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, listen to what it says. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail to be discouraged discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, meaning the Gentiles, will wait for his law. And then Matthew repeats this here and he he, he, lets us examine this, this prophecy for a minute. He says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Right out of the very beginning of the passage, we hear God say that Jesus is his choice for the Messiah. Any student in the Bible would understand this because John 1.1 says he actually was God in the flesh. And then he calls him my beloved. Now the word beloved we learned uh, uh, last week, I think, that means it's what David's name means. His name means beloved. So... This is the greater David, Jesus, the greater David. And so because he's a son, not a servant, he's called beloved. God goes on to say that he's well pleased with him, so much so that he is the only one who will actually have the Holy Spirit during his time on earth. And he will show justice even to the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews thought the Gentiles, they called them Goyim. It's a Hebrew word meaning dogs. So if there aren't any Jews in the room, guess what you are? If you voted for Trump, you're deplorable. No. And if you're a Gentile, you're a dog. Well, God's always chosen the weak things and the despised things of the world for his sake. But he says he will not quarrel or cry out when people came to Jesus to trip him up. With questions, he, there was no real quarrel. His wisdom always was the understanding of the true word of God. He just shut them down immediately with the truth. He didn't go out in the streets and holler and cry. Now, this next session is very precious to us. At least it's very precious to me. Jesus says that a bruised reed he will not break. Now, Jesus already sees us as broken. The very fact that we're sinners means we're broken. 
That's why he came. A bruised reed is a person who's been beaten up by the world or beaten up by life, maybe even about to die. They're bruised. Smoking flax is a picture of, of something barely alive. Flax was used, says the Roman Empire first provided evidence of a candle that resembles a candle today. They melted tallow until it was liquid and poured it over fibers of flax, hemp, and cotton and made it a wick out of it. So a smoking wick he will not put out. So what does that mean? Smoking flax is one of the mo- one, you know, almost out, put out. There's a slight spark still there. What's he referring to? Well, smoking flax under a pile of sticks, if you blow on it, will create a fire. Or a wick that's barely glowing can be brought back to be a flame again. And that's the way God sees us. We're broken. We're bruised reeds. We're smoking flax. Sometimes we can, even as a Christian, we can get so far away from God, we barely have a testimony for him anymore. But he's not done with us yet. He won't break the bruised reed or extinguish that little flame in there, that spark. He's always trying to draw us to fan the flames of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Always. The prediction that the Gentiles would trust his name in that passage basically comes from the idea that it's something the Jews completely missed. Even Peter had to be convinced by a dream that a Gentile could get saved. And now we come to a passage of Scripture that's really hard to to understand. It's been misunderstood. Jesus encounters a man that's demon-possessed. And his his demonic condition caused him to be blind and unable to talk, dumb or mute. So he healed the man and cast out the demon. The people see this happening, and they're awed by it. And they say, could this be the son of David? Even though some of them are still not completely convinced, they're amazed at him. In fact, what he did was a sign of the Messiah, wasn't it? Now the jealous Pharisees go too far. They attribute his ability to cast out demons to that of the devil or Beelzebub. And that's not the first time it happened. Back in chapter 9 of Matthew, he says, When the demon was cast out and the mute spoke, the multitudes marveled and said, It's never been like this before in Israel. And the Pharisees said back then, He cast out demons by the rulers of demons. And in Matthew 10.25, Jesus warned us, It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. <coughs> if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Here they again attribute the works of Jesus to the power of the devil. Jesus appeals how, to how illogical this is, first of all. I think he's being very nice to them before he probably pronounces total unforgiveness. He has to set them straight. The logic is this. Satan... Divided against him, Satan is not going to cast out his own minions. Satan is very crafty and smart, but he's not dumb enough to weaken his own army, is he? 
by attacking his own soldiers. And Jesus points this out. And he says, if he casts out demons by the power of the demon, how do their sons cast them out? Supposedly they could do that. But if I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Further logic, he says you can't enter a strong man's house and and plunder his goods unless you bind up that strong man. Neither can a person cast out a demon unless a ruler of the demons is bound, which in Jesus' case is what he was actually doing. He could do nothing, Satan could do nothing against the overreaching power of the Son of God. This is part of a promise God made in Genesis 3. Where he says that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing here. And later on he goes to the cross and completely removes all power from Satan. Hallelujah. It's interesting. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 to 15. Listen to what it says. Inasmuch as the children have partaken in flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same. And through death he might destroy him. Who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you see here that the cross of Christ destroyed Satan? How? Well, the the word for Satan or devil in the Greek is diabolos. And it actually means someone who stands and points their finger in an unjust or even a correct accusation. The same word, however, is used for gossip, for slander. When a church is divided by slander or gossip, it's a direct result of giving people giving themselves over to their selfish reasons to the devil's methods. It requires a strong man to resist this. Now, I would just like to say something to the elders of this church. This is a parting shot. Okay, I urge you to stand against this kind of devilish, gossipy, slanderous behavior. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Even gossips are not the real problem, and you need to realize that, that we're not struggling against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against uh, principalities and powers and satanic forces in heavenly places and in the hearts and minds of people who gossip. Now, this isn't the unforgivable sin, (laughs) so I'm not there yet. But Jesus does give a strong warning now to these Pharisees and to those standing around. And this warning is sometimes mistaken. I think it is very clear personally, but before we look at the warning, think about, just think for a minute about the heart or hearts of the Pharisees to say such a thing about Jesus. To stand there and watch a man possessed by a demon, unable to speak and blind, healed. I mean, most of us would be running around, jumping up and down and saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, but not the Pharisees. They attributed that to demonic power. How hard do you have to be to do that? There's a place known only to God where a person can go too far. I don't think a man can actually know where that demarcation is, but 
Paul called himself a blasphemer and a persecutor. So he fit into that category. Jesus said, not even those who speak a word against the Son of Man, or even those who speak a word against the Son of Man could be forgiven. But here's the real warning in this passage. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You could say you're with him and not be. The evidence is what you're doing with him and for him. Are you gathering with him? Do you seek every opportunity to bring people to Christ and then disciple them? Not just leave them unsaved and running around as thumb-sucking babies. Or instead, do you scatter? You might say, well, I would never do that. I submit to you that Jesus is saying, by doing nothing, you're scattering. By doing nothing, you're scattering. Remember when he said to the sheep on the right, he said, when you saw me weak and sick and in the hospital and in prison, you visited me. They said, when did we see you? He said, as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And to those on the left, he said, you saw me in prison and sick and weak and helpless, and you didn't visit me, and you didn't help me. When do we see you? You say, oh, I wouldn't scatter abroad. I wouldn't want to do anything. Let me just tell you something. The most important thing that God hates is someone sowing discord among the brethren, and he considers that scattering. Scattering abroad. Now, you may not like what I'm saying to you, but it's just the Bible's word. So he comes to this place describing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the unforgivable sin. I remember before I was saved and reading that passage, I wondered if I had committed that sin. I've had a lot of young people say that to me. Since becoming a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, Brother John, I'm afraid I might have committed that sin. I said, do you want to be forgiven? Well, yes, then you haven't committed that sin. He says blasphemy the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven now or in the age to come. Not now, he's in his time, during the age of law, nor in the age of grace to come. In our study in James, we've uh, discovered that the tongue is a terrible tool of, of the devil. And the tongue speaks what comes out of the what? Heart. David Platt said, I, I think this is funny. It's amazing that God has put teeth around the tongue like a cage and a mouth to shut it out closed. It doesn't change the heart, though. The problem is the heart. That's where the seed is, where the tongue gets its venom. And the Pharisees were doing here typical people who don't want to hear the truth. Michael Youssef once said that he, in preaching a particular section of doctrine, there were some people in the church that didn't like it, and they left. And he said, I'm glad they're gone. Their methods are well known. And it's the tactic of the devil. If you can't discredit the truth, discredit the truth teller. That's why we get persecuted and called names in the world. They can't discredit the truth. The truth is the truth. So they discredit us. 
well, you do this or you do that or you're this or you're that. Well, I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. (laughs) Want to hear about that? No, they don't want to hear about that because they think that I'm a hypocrite. You know, my dad used to say, people would say, I don't go to that church because you have too many hypocrites there. He said, well, you can go to church with them or go to hell with them. (laughs) Thank you, dear. (laughs) That's true. So he calls us not to be a part of this kind of devilish behavior. But then Jesus goes on a little bit further to focus down on what this sin really is, this unforgivable sin. He says, make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Now, in the study in James we've been doing, David Platt used an illustration of a man (coughs) who had an apple tree, and it was bearing bad apples. So he goes into town and buys a couple of bushels of real healthy apples and staples them to the tree. From a distance, it looked good. Did he solve his problem? No, he didn't have a good tree, did he? And now comes this rebuke from Jesus that identifies the Pharisees right where they are. He calls them a brood of vipers. I can't imagine being called that by Jesus. And they could have cared less. How can you... Being evil, speak good things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now Jesus brings, he says, an evil man brings forth evil things from his heart. And a good man brings forth good things from his heart. It's always the heart. The core of your being is where this is coming from. And he brings another caution to these people. He says, every idle word, or I think you used the word careless there in your, your version of the Bible, that men speak will give account of. The word idle here, or careless, is the Greek word argos. And it means lazy, useless, unthinking, barren, idle, thoughtless word. Particularly about Christ. By your words you'll be justified, he said, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. There's words that justify you. And he says, whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father in heaven. If you have real faith, real faith, In the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, your words reveal it. If you do not, your words reveal that too. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, speaks, resulting in salvation. So we see this as a heart problem. Can anybody commit this sin today, this unforgivable sin? I'm not sure. I've never heard anybody do it. Mark 3.30, Mark really kind of gets very specific about what the sin is. They said he, Jesus, had an unclean spirit. Standing there looking at Jesus and looking at what he did and saying, (coughs) demonic. From the devil. 
They were attributing to the Son of God that he was evil in his core. That he had an unclean demonic spirit. I've never heard anybody say this before, but either actively or passively, but these people, these Pharisees, were doomed to eternal damnation. He told us before, Behold the servant of the Lord. He went forth as the pure Son of God. He shed sinless blood for your sins. He stood in your place of judgment. And if he were as if he were guilty himself of your sins. That's the way God judged him. As if he were guilty of your sins. And he rose again proving his worth. A mere passive rejection of Jesus Christ is equal to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Oh, come on, John. Is is it that serious? The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10.26. If you keep on sinning after hearing the truth, you've got nothing to look forward to but fiery indignation from God. Why would you trot underfoot, he says, the Son of God, and consider his blood just a common, worthless thing? That's what you're doing. Oh, but I go to church. I work in a mission. I go to a summer mission. I do this, I do that. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you have real faith in Jesus Christ? And have you proven that faith by getting baptized? And have you proven that baptism by the way you live, by the way you walk, by the way you talk? Which is the issue here. It's equal to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable because you keep justifying yourself and your actions. You're headed toward destruction forever. Is that what Jesus wants? <laughs> Obviously not. That's why we're here today. Gathering a bunch of sinners who are helpless and, and tripping up all the time and, and screwing up with each other and making each other mad at each other and sometimes making each other happy. But we're, we're a one kind of a crooked looking body in here. I'm glad to be a part of it. Because I'm crooked too. (laughs) And I can go to crooked people and find out how you're getting out of your crookedness. He came to die for those who are evil sinners before God. So that by repentance and faith we could participate in something we absolutely do not deserve. And then he rose again to secure our salvation eternally. Wow. Come to Jesus And make the tree good. Because I don't care how good you think you are. Without Christ, you're a rotten tree. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope I haven't stepped on anybody. Uh, Paul's shaking his foot like I heard his toes back there. This is not in my notes, but I just want to say this. My favorite verse in the Bible, one of my favorite, but this is kind of a favorite verse of mine, is Romans 8.32. Now listen to what it says. He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us. How would he not now freely give us all things? Now I like the second part of that because it's really uplifting. But there's a negative side there. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. Also a negative and a positive. But think about this, my friends. Those of you who have not trusted Christ, those of you who are faking it, think about this. Please. If God did not spare his son, why didn't he spare his son? He had made him to be sin. And if you don't think God hates sin just as much now as he did then, he refused to spare his son. As he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was loading him up with all of our sin. And even though Jesus cried out, he refused to spare him. May I submit to you, if you go into eternity without Christ, do you think God will refuse to spare you? No, he will not spare you. You'll get the brunt of what Jesus took. What an awful thing to think about. And there will be no, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you drift off or be thrown into the lake of fire, it's too late. I want to tell you something today. There are young people, boys and girls in this room. There's teenagers in this room. There's adults in this room who are somehow putting off trusting Jesus and following him. After hearing the gospel all of your life, do not think that you can say, which I have a lot of people say to me, I'm not ready yet. Let me just tell you something. God's ready right now to save you. Amen? And he says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. If you put it off or you say, oh God, I, I'm not quite ready yet. I've got things I've got to do. Make no mistake about it. You have no promise of tomorrow. None whatsoever. <clears throat> if you die today without Christ, you will hear God say, don't ask me to spare you. I've already done everything I can to obliterate your sin by refusing to spare my only son. In your place. Now, giving your heart to Jesus is not what he wants. He doesn't want that old evil thing. He wants you to receive him and have a new heart. Right? The problem is, is this. A lot of us see that and we go, oh, I, I, I really hope it scares you a little bit. I'm not trying to scare you or make you doubt your salvation. But here's the thing. There's no second chance if you die. There's no purgatory. There's no remedial place. You're either absent from the body and present with the Lord or absent from the body and present in hell. Just like that. But the second half of that verse, for those of you here today who have received Jesus, who have taken him at his word, who have taken this free gift that you absolutely do not deserve, if he spared not his only son, how would he not now <laughs> give us all things through him? Oh, we pray, oh God, would you, could you, please, could you, could you, would you? That's not the way you're supposed to pray. 
You're supposed to come boldly to the throne of grace. Tell God what the problem is. He may already know, but he wants to hear you talk about it. Tell him. Pray. That's Prayer is very important. It's the way you communicate with God. Sometimes we talk too much when we get in God's presence. But all you have to do is realize that Jesus is waiting with open arms to give you something you could never deserve or earn. And it's only because God loves. I don't know why, but God loves me and you. Amen? Let's pray. (coughs) Father, Abba, we come to you today praying for those in this room under the sound of your word that your spirit would prick their hearts, would punch it, would stick it with the pens of conviction until there's a relenting on the part of that person. We look at the Pharisees, Father, and we, we see how hard they were. But the heart that says, I'm not ready yet, is just as hard. And truly, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, Lord, is just rejecting your Son completely. There's no forgiveness after death for that. But if there's anybody in this room that is afraid that they may have done something, that they've gone too far, oh, Lord, show them today. This, if they're here, grace is available. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.